Welcome to the Money Answer Show with host Jordan Goodman. Whether you are starting out, deep into your retirement, or somewhere in between, the Money Answer Show has the know-how to help you. Now here's your host, Jordan Goodman. Welcome to the Money Answer Show. This is Jordan Goodman, your host. My guest this hour is Una McDonald. Uh, she has written a book called Lehman Brothers, A Crisis of Value. And welcome to the show, Una. Thank you very much. Good afternoon. So th- before we get into the book, just tell us a little bit about your background uh, in, in the financial world and in parliament and everything you've done leading up to writing this book. <laughs> that would take a long time. but uh, briefly, <laughs> Do the short version. <laughs> I will do the short version, yes. Uh, briefly, I was a member of parliament, and during the years that I was, I was a uh, treasury spokesman, which meant that I led for the opposition on that and took part in sometimes criticizing the government and at other times cooperating when we introduced non-controversial regulatory bills. I then lost my seat in 1987. I'd done so much work on financial regulation that it was a natural follow-on for me to become a board member of then the Securities and Investments Board, later the Financial Services Authority, and other regulatory bodies. I was also a director of various commercial companies uh, in the financial services sector, mainly insurance companies and investments. And I also spent a lot of time working in other countries advising financial service regulators on well, how it should be done. And so leading up to this book, Lehman Brothers was such a pivotal moment in world financial history here. Yes. Uh, but, and a lot has been written on it. Why did you see the need to write this particular book called Lehman Brothers, A Crisis of Value? Because I felt that a lot of books have been written. And of course, they tend to focus on that fateful weekend when no one could find a buyer for Lehman Brothers. And eventually, it had to declare bankruptcy. Uh, on Sunday, on the Sunday, September the 14th. Why did I write a book about it? I first of all wanted to write, because it was so important, as you rightly say, a pivotal moment, Jordan. Uh, I also wanted to write about what kind of company it was. How did it get to this position? Why was it a trigger for what seemed to us at the time to be almost the collapse of the global financial system? And then what was the key issue around which Lehman Brothers founded? Founded, And that really had to do with its purchases of residential properties, but more particularly commercial real estate, and its failure to value those properly. And that meant it had illiquid assets on its books and was unable to raise the short-term funding it needed to carry on with the work that it was doing. So let's go back to the beginning. Your first chapter is about the history of Lehman Brothers from the beginning yes. of the cotton trader. So just yep. kind of very briefly kind of give us the background of what Lehman <coughs> Brothers was about before it got to the 2008 crisis period. Uh, that's interesting. It's quite a long history, and in a way, you could say that only the name survived. I go right back to the beginning as cotton traders, how this led them to setting up uh, an exchange for trading cotton, then how gradually all the members of the family 
died or no one was willing to take on the company. So it was Lehman Brothers, but no Lehman Brothers at all, involved in the running of the company. Then it was sold to American Express. And then in 1994, this is really where it begins to become interesting, American Express decided not to continue to own Lehman Brothers, sold it, and it was at that point that Dick Fould, who'd already been employed by the company, took over as chief executive of Lehman Brothers. First of all, it was a fixed income trader, limiting itself to bonds of various kinds. And then, in those days, uh, Dick Fould, who was the CEO, got to know all the traders, all the members of staff. He would go around and talk to them and he knew who they were, what they were doing, and the company was of a size uh, not too large, so that he was in a position to do that. Then gradually, Fall decided to expand the company, buying up a large range of companies throughout Europe and Asia, and becoming an investment bank as opposed to a fixed interest trader. Now, Dick Fould, and I think this is quite important for what happened next. Dick Fould worked and worked to make the company what it was. It was his baby. And as even Bernanke points out, that if there was short trading against his shares, or if an analyst was critical of Lehman Brothers, Lehman took, Dick Fould took it personally. The company was what he had made and what he was determined would continue to grow and he would continue as its chief executive. He did a lot of acquisitions in the subprime mortgage area, is that correct? Because that's part right. of what led to the crisis. What were some of the acquisitions he made and why was that considered a good acquisition at the time? Ah, no, he really moved, actually, he really moved into real estate from 2006 onwards. So he moved at what was already the wrong time, uh, because mid-2006, prices in the residential market and in the commercial real estate market had already begun to falter. But Fould was determined then, over that next two years, that he could pull the company through really by contrarian investing. He was investing against the trend. He reckoned he had done that in the late 90s, in the Asian crisis and in the Russian crisis, long-term capital management as well. And Lehman's had survived and survived better than some of the other companies then. So he thought that he would be able to do that again. Were, were there then, other voices within Lehman saying this is not a good idea? to be heavily betting on real estate when prices are peaking? Only in a limited way, uh, the head of risk management, Madeline, her name was, except, of course, there was a whole wonderful risk management structure uh, which recommended the risk limits should, should be imposed on the company, but Ford ignored all of that, ignored his risk management people and what they were telling him. So that really was one of the problems. And of course, Dick Ford became increasingly cut off with a very small group of executives around him on what was famously Floor 31. And hardly yes. anybody went to visit him 
and talked to him there. And if you disagreed too strongly while you were going to be pushed out of the company anyway. So, of course, those are all good reasons for people to keep their mouths shut. <laughs> well, then you talk about the from hubris to nemesis, yes. uh, January to September to the, the, the dawn of the crisis. So what yep. was happening at Lehman Brothers before the crisis, uh, from January to September 2008? Well, there were various external shocks, but by then he had completed the sale in just towards the end of 2007. He had completed the purchase, I should say, not the sale, the purchase of Artstone. Artstone Real Investment Trust was the owner of large apartment, high-end apartment blocks in all the major cities of the U.S. Normally, you would regard that as quite a good purchase. He paid far too much for it. Bank of America and Barclays were both in on the deal. Then you go through, as you go through, uh, the first good set of results that he had was in January 2008. Those results were announced. Everything looked good. As I said in the book, everything is rosy. Uh, those were the accounts covered till the end of November 2007. Then, of course, anxieties began to grow in the market about the value of both residential and commercial real estate. Then there was the collapse of Beersteins and the government rescue of that in March 2008. And what was the impact of the collapse of Bearsteins on Lehman Brothers? Ah, uh, his shares started to fall in value and people began to look at Lehman's and to reckon that Lehman's was the next for the government bailout. And also Lehman's was losing money at the time, so its June accounts, when announced, what they were trying to do was to present the results early and in as, in as good a light as possible, but many were not convinced by it. So he was uh, giving all kinds of reassurances Exactly, with nothing to back it up, <laughs> very little to back it up. Uh -huh. in, as the, if you remember Beerstein's collapse in 2008, uh, had a huge impact, but then the government's rescue seemed to calm down the markets for a while, but some of the analysts, in particular one called David Einhorn, examined Lehman's accounts very, very carefully, went through them with a fine-tooth comb and said that the assets that Lehman had uh, were overvalued, that it was too highly leveraged, borrowing on the short-term wholesale funding market, and that Lehman's was trying to deceive the public about the actual value of the company then. And how did Lehman react when people said those things about them, rep reputable people? <laughs> well, um, first of all, as I said, he tried to have a good, a good picture presented. The person who was then appointed as chief financial officer was unable to handle the criticisms that were being made, so she got the sack. The risk manager got the sack or rather was demoted within the company. Other more friendly voices were, uh, as far as food was concerned, were appointed. And gradually, confidence just slipped away. You remember that then we found that Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac 
required government support in July 2008. And then in September, Fanny and Freddie were taken into conservatorship. Uh, Henry Paulson, who was then Treasury Secretary, said that he had been talking to Lehman Brothers to Dick Fould the whole of that summer in an attempt to encourage Lehman's either to find a buyer uh, for all or part of it or to improve the amount of capital that they held. They tried to do that with a very limited success. But then uh, no buyer was found and as no buyer could be found, confidence slowly ebbed away. Okay, we're going to take a break. We're going to take a break and continue the story. Uh, this is Jordan Goodman of The Money Answer Show. My guest this hour is Una McDonald. Uh, she's the author of a new book called Lehman Brothers, A Crisis of Value. And we'll pick up the story after this. Always talking business. Talk to an expert. Call now, toll free, 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. Have you had a chance to check out Voice America's online magazine and blog, Press Pass? If you love our hosts and shows, check out articles that give an even deeper perspective. Plus, topics about health and fitness, movie reviews, philosophy, business tips and tactics, spirituality, positive thought, current events, and even more about your favorite host. It's just a click away at VAPressPass.com. That's VAPressPass.com. VA Press Pass by Voice America. All access, all the time. Bob Pritchard has over 30 years of experience as a straight-talking business consultant and author working with some of the top Fortune 500 companies. Now he's come to the Voice America Business Channel to help you and your business. Tune in to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show for information about starting and successfully running a profitable business. From the movers and shakers to great marketing screw-ups, you can't afford to miss a single edition of the Bob Pritchard Radio Show, Tuesdays at 5 p.m. Pacific, 8 p.m. Eastern on Voice America Business. Leadership is a vital skill set in today's competitive global economy. Being a leader is not enough. To succeed, you must optimize your performance and know how to imbue others in your organization with leadership skills. Practical, actionable leadership insights are the focus of Leadership Development News, hosted each Monday at 9 a.m. Pacific, noon Eastern, by Kathy Greenberg and Relly Nadler on the Voice America Business Channel. Doctors Greenberg and Nadler, who coach global leaders on how to be most effective, will share their insights and contacts. The path to leadership excellence begins here. We're always talking business. Talk to an expert. Call now. Toll free. 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. You've been listening to The Money Answer Show with Jordan Goodman. If you have a question for Jordan or his guest, please call us now at 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Now back to Jordan. Welcome back to The Money Answer Show. This is Jordan Goodman, your host. My guest this hour is Una McDonald. Uh, she's a financial services expert around the world. It was in Parliament. Her latest book is called Lehman Brothers, A Crisis of Value. You can also find out more about her and her book at her website, which is unamcdonald.com, spelled O-O-N-A-G-H, mcdonald.com. Welcome back to the show, Una. Thank you. 
So we've uh, got up to the fateful weekend, and then you have a whole chapter on exactly what happened. So briefly kind of tell us what were the last efforts to save the company? Could it, in fact, have been sold to Barclays, or you know, could we have avoided the entire crisis that happened afterwards? Yes, I think it could have been avoided. But first of all, let's think of the main players. We had Henry Paulson as the Treasury Secretary. He had already been castigated in the press for rescuing Bierstein's. So he was disinclined to allow for any bailout of Lehman Brothers. Then we have Timothy Geithner, then president of the New York Reserve, Federal Reserve Bank. He, I think, might have been more sympathetic to a bailout, but he did everything he could to try and preserve Lehman Brothers. The other players who came, Bernanke wasn't there. Bernanke was fulfilling a speaking engagement, but was obviously kept informed uh, during the entire weekend. It must have been a strange, surreal weekend. You had the Bank of America there, Merrill Lynch there, you had Barclays Bank there, each with their team of advisors, lawyers, financial experts, and so on. And the hope was that you could bring these players together, just like the rescue of long-term capital management. That was really always in Geithner's mind right at the beginning. <coughs> Excuse me. You could bring them to all together and find a solution, preferably a buyer. Now, my view of the matter is really rather different from some people's view of it. First of all, I note that Bank of America and Barclays both had shared in this purchase of Artstone. Mm -hmm. They took part to a much smaller extent than Lehman's themselves. Lehman's paid $22 billion for Artstone. But I take the view that because Bank of America and Barclays were both involved in that purchase, and of course they were the... Um, the Bank of America was one of the clearing and settlement banks uh, for Lehman's. I think that both of them had a pretty fair idea of what the state of Lehman's was, and they weren't going to shell out any money to pay for it. Well, Bar In Bank of America was also going through its own troubles exactly. at the time with Merrill Lynch and all that, right? So yeah. Well, uh, Bank of America had always also been daft enough to, to purchase countrywide, Yes. Which in January that year, which as we all know was one of the biggest sell sellers or arrangers of subprime mortgages in the residential sector. Yeah. Merrill Lynch was, as you rightly say, teetering on the brink. Barclays, on whom hope seemed to be pinned, in my view, Barclays A knew what the real position of Lehman's was, or had at least a shrewd suspicion. Secondly, I note that Barclays' Bob Diamond did not come to that weekend with any specific proposal to buy Lehman's. And it seems to me that's surely what you would do if you were serious about it. That wasn't going to be a plan that you threw together over a weekend. I think that all Barclays did, and in fact one of my interviews with a former senior director of, of Lehman's confirmed that Barclays was only there to pick what they really wanted out of the collapse of Lehman Brothers and certainly not to buy the whole thing. So you're saying there really was nobody who was willing to buy the whole thing with government backing. I mean, that was the big worry is 
is the Treasury going to bail things out? With, with Bear Stearns, they had given Chase, I think it was $29 billion or something, to buy exactly, yes. Bear Stearns. Yeah. And so that's what made the deal happen. It wouldn't have happened without that. No. Uh, but you're saying that there was nobody, even with a government bailout, that was willing to take over Lehman. Is that what you're saying? Well, uh, but remember that Paulson, Treasury Secretary, had already announced right up to the uh, morning of that fateful weekend, no government money. Yeah, because he was still reeling from the criticism from the Bear Stearns. Exactly, yeah. exactly. But that's not and a good way to go into a negotiation, saying... <laughs> <laughs> well, no, of course. I think Geithner was not best pleased with him for uh, ruling something out before the whole negotiations over the weekend even begun. Yeah. And Paulson was very careful to make that very, very plain. And uh, in his subsequent biography, he makes it plain that it was never his intention to buy any government money. He had to stick by what he thought were his principles then. So you think uh, in the long run that was a mistake, that he should not have gone into negotiations taking a government bailout off the table from the beginning? Uh, taking it off the table from the beginning, no, I think that was a mistake. But I think that what the government should have done really, was to have taken over Lehman Brothers, got shot of all the senior management, um, and slowly sorted out Lehman's affairs. But that was not what the government was prepared to do. Similar to what they did with Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac. Yeah, exactly. Uh, Something like that, I think, would have mm -hmm. been better. Of course, uh, Bernanke, as you know, said the Federal Reserve had no such powers, but uh, there's considerable debate over that, and I've I come down on the side that it would have been possible for uh, the Federal Reserve in conjunction with the Treasury to put money in and to save, Le save Lehman's. Not because Lehman's deserved it, but because surely Paul Paulson, who had formerly been chief executive of Goldman Sachs, should have understood the global implications of allowing Lehman's to collapse. It was a very complex bank. What did he think was going to happen if Lehman was allowed to declare bankruptcy going into that weekend? I think that, uh, in a way, his judgment was clouded by his own ideology mm -hmm. and also by, by the buffeting that he got from the rescue of Beer Steens. Mm -hmm. One of the things I note is where our parliamentary system is so different that if you get to be chancellor or some other senior cabinet minister, uh, you are drawn from parliament itself. You're an elected member of parliament. And the advantage of that is that by the time you get to be secretary of state for whatever, you've already ridden out lots of criticisms. You've learned how to handle yourself when you're subject to criticism or when others disagree with your policy. I think when you bring in a chief executive, and we've done that sometimes in the UK, chief executives have become members of parliament, but the role of a chief executive, at least in the eyes of those who become chief executives, is quite different. They're not subject to criticism. And <laughs> I think part of the problem was that... Um, Polson had never faced that kind of criticism mm -hmm. from time when he was chief executive. So that was really part of the problem as, I, as far as I was concerned. So let's go right to the story now. So there was no bailout. No Sunday bailout. comes at, and the, the layman says they, there's no bailout. They're declaring bankruptcy. 
What then happens in the markets right after that? Well, let's just go through the um, the board of Lehman's had actually to be told to declare bankruptcy and were first somewhat resistant to the idea, but then they were pushed into the declaration of bankruptcy. By Paulson? Yes, and also by Tom Baxter from uh, the Federal Reserve. They were told mm -hmm. that's what they had to do, and I set that out in the book. What happened was the credit crunch. Now, why did that happen? Uh, Lehman's, as I said, was interconnected. The credit crunch came because banks stopped lending to each other. The collapse of Lehman's, its bankruptcy, meant that banks wouldn't lend to each other because they no longer knew what the value of each other's assets were. It was kind and of counterparty risk. They didn't know if they were going to get right. paid. That's right. They didn't understand. Bank A is not going to lend to Bank B. You say you have these assets. I have no idea how much these are worth and how much you're pretending that they are worth. So what Lehman's did was to draw, destroy the trust that is actually essential. It sounds kind of very old-fashioned, doesn't it? But the trust is essential to the working of the banking system. So does all the other firms, all the other big investment firms that they would be trading with, their assets yeah. were now well, called not, in question as well. Indeed, and not just amongst the investment banks, but amongst commercial banks, both uh, in America and in the rest of the world. So then the stock market drops sharply. Absolutely. It, and so how does then the uh, administration and Wall Street react to this situation? Well, then they had to start pumping money into the banking system. Troubled asset relief program, which eventually they got through Congress. So that made it clear that the government, not just the American government, but other major governments as well, all had to make it clear that the, their central banks were ready to stand behind the banking system in each of their countries, where of course money was flowing not only within America from one bank to another, but from America and vice versa to banks throughout the globe. So this is the lender so, of last resort. So it's, it's, in a certain way, you're replacing the trust with each other with trust in the central banks. Yes, that's right. And they could demonstrate that trust by showing how much they were prepared to put into the system. And very slowly, over the rest of 2008 until 2009, gradually lending begins between the banks and very, very slowly, the financial system begins to pick up. But so what happens to Lehman Brothers? Lehman Brothers, Brothers, I mean, they're yep. bankrupt now. What happens to their clients, to their employees, to the entire interconnected web that they're part of? What happens to that? Well, if people have got good memories, they will no doubt have seen it. American TV and the photographs in American newspapers of all the employees carrying their boxes of their possessions out of the building. That happened in New York and it happened in London as well. And those are the kind of dramatic figures. And many employees lost not only their job, but also the value of their assets, their investments, because quite a lot of the money that they received was actually in the form of shares in Lehman Brothers, mm -hmm. which, of course, had become virtually valueless. So uh, they left with 
less than nothing. And they, <laughs> it's <laughs> and hard to have whole, less than nothing, but I guess they well, that. You know what they I lost mean. their assets and their job. <laughs> yes, that's right. Very good. <laughs> nothing uh, to show. And <laughs> many of them had worked for a long time for Lehman's Brothers. And pretty much got wiped out, yes. Okay, we're gonna, wiped out. We're going to take a break, actually. Uh, this is Jordan Goodman of The Money Answer Show. My guest this hour is Una McDonald. Uh, her new book is called uh, Lehman Brothers, A Crisis of Value. Uh, you can find out more about her and her book at unamcdonald.com. We'll be back after this. Stocks, bonds, investment opportunities, financial news, and talk. We can help. Call us now toll-free, 866-472-5790. 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. Capital Thinking takes you inside the worlds of policy, politics, law, and business. What happens in government, the legal arena, and the business world impacts your business every day. And we're going to take you on a behind-the-scenes tour of it all. Each week, we'll bring you unfiltered conversation with a variety of influential policymakers and leaders. Squire Patton Boggs will be your guide as Capital Thinking tours the halls of power. Join us for Capital Thinking on the Voice America Business Channel each Thursday at noon Eastern and 9 a.m. Pacific Time. Have you had a chance to check out Voice America's online magazine and blog, Press Pass? If you love our hosts and shows, check out articles that give an even deeper perspective. Plus topics about health and fitness, movie reviews, philosophy, business tips and tactics, spirituality, positive thought, current events, and even more about your favorite host. It's just a click away at VAPressPass.com. That's VAPressPass.com. VA Press Pass by Voice America. All access, all the time. We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network wherever you go. In addition to listening live, you can check out information about your favorite talk show hosts, discover new talk show personalities, add shows to your list of favorites, and listen to all our show archives on demand. All from your iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android. Download it from the Apple App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market, and get ready to tune in. The Voice America mobile app, powered by Aircast. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. You've been listening to The Money Answer Show with Jordan Goodman. If you have a question for Jordan or his guest, please call us now at 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Now back to Jordan. Welcome back to The Money Answer Show. This is Jordan Goodman, your host. My guest this hour is Una McDonald. She's a former member of parliament, expert in uh, financial services. Her latest book is called Lehman Brothers, A Crisis of Value. You can also find more about her book and her at her website, which is unamcdonald.com, spelled O-O-A-O-O-N-A-G-H, mcdonald.com. Welcome back to the show, Una. Thank you. So now we've got Lehman Brothers uh, bankrupt. We've got the TARP. Let's talk about some of the longer-term implications of all this. One of the things that came out of this was the Dodd-Frank regulation to, that said they'll never, this will never be allowed to happen again. What has been the impact of the Dodd-Frank regulation as you see it in the financial services market? I think, um, I think the problem with Dodd-Frank, it has introduced many regulations, and one of them I'd like to talk about a bit in a moment is the Volcker Rule. 
But I think one of the problems for America is the structure of regulation. As you know, you still have more than one banking regulator. You have banking regulation at state level with state examiners. You have the Office of the Controller of the Currency. You have the Federal Reserve. And now you've got uh, a separate organization looking at, looking at and defending consumer interests. One of the problems that emerged, and I don't think there's anything much in Dodd-Frank that changes this, is the relationships between all of these regulatory authorities Less opportunity for arbitrage because you got rid of the Office of Thrift Supervision, which was, by all accounts, pretty useless anyway, was that it took so long for new regulations to emerge. And these are often expressed in terms of guidance or heightened awareness instead of being straightforwardly called regulations and applied as regulations, which is what we would do. For example, during the whole housing, the residential mortgage crisis, uh, no rule about the, what exactly counted as a subprime mortgage, let alone regulations against it, emerged till 2007. It was in discussion between the various regulatory authorities forever. So that's one of the problems. Then the other issue to me is that Dodd-Frank seems to me to miss the point with the introduction of the Volcker Rule, which prevents banks from using deposits or for using any other money or assets that they may hold to trade for themselves. As we call proprietary trading, yes. Yes, exactly. So, now, they're saying that the reason that they did that, that Volcker wanted that, was that was one of the main problems was that these banks were gambling, in effect, with uh, exactly. government deposits, and that's brought them down to, to prevent that exactly. from ever happening again. They keep oh. So what is wrong with that analysis of the situation? Well, <laughs> called casino banking. Well, first of all, you have to remember that what, which banks collapsed? Right. You have the investment banks, but these were standalone investment banks, extremely purely uh, extremely poorly regulated, well, in fact, hardly regulated at all by the Securities and Exchange Commission. And for the other banks that collapsed, it was the very familiar story of reasons for bank collapsing, ultimately bad lending. Washington so you're saying Mutual. that the Volcker rule does not affect... Oh, it's it, solving it misses, the wrong problem, you're saying. It misses the point entirely. Yeah. I mean, how can you call it casino banking when uh, the main ones that caused the trouble in that sector were standalone investment banks? They I mean, they also were saying in the Dodd-Frank, they have all kinds of regulations to make it uh, harder for people to get mortgages, to have higher standards, yes, higher down payments and all that to, to avoid the subprime and the Washington Mutual and the countrywide kind of lending. So uh -huh. you think okay. that's a good idea, is that correct? Well, it would be a good idea if it actually happened. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> let, me, let me just tell you a little bit about the Volcker Rule background, okay. which was told to me by a very senior banker here in the UK who knew Volcker, Paul Volcker, very well indeed. Uh, apparently, Volcker had written this paper as economic advisor and had sent it up to the Oval Office a whole year before. Obama actually announced it. Then suddenly, with an hour's notice, 
Obama was going to call Paul Volcker down, introduce this particular paper as the solution to the problem, the Volcker Rule. Uh, now, the Volcker Rule has now been finalized. It, the detailed regulations are take up 1,000 pages. Mm -hmm. So can you imagine anybody working at a bank trying to figure out what they're supposed to do when? Because it's very difficult to distinguish between what banks are doing on their own account and what they would do, for example, to benefit the commercial companies or small to medium-sized companies that banked with them, for example, hedging for future changes in oil prices would be a very good example of the kind of hedging that banks would do for their customers. So what has been the impact of that, whether you have a thousand-page bill that's so complex? <laughs> well, banks it's only, become it, risk averse? No, it has only just been produced. The final detailed regulations only came out a couple of months ago. Now, mm -hmm. uh, with a thousand pages of detailed regulations, and we all know the fondness for litigation in America, I would say it's the lawyers who are rubbing their hands with glee over this. Mm -hmm. Just interpreting it will cause <laughs> Interpreting it and challenging the interpretation. Now, now, one of the things that happened as well is the investment banks have spun off their proprietary trading desks where they're not trading well, themselves. Those are, they got yes. rid of those over the last few years. You think that yes. was a good thing? Not necessarily. It depends what they were using them for and how they were used. Mm -hmm. So it's not necessarily a good thing to have done that. Um, the remaining uh, investment banks, as you know, immediately became financial holding companies, which is what they should have been in the first place. Now, the other issue that you raised was tighter controls on mortgage lending. And yes, that yes. is quite right. But Fanny and Freddie have begun to loosen their requirements for the loans that they purchase from originators so that there is a weakening of those requirements that we call them underwriting criteria. Why is there a weakening of those? Because politicians, I'm afraid, always want to make sure that those who are not very well off are in the, or indeed, rather poor, are in a position to buy a house. It's called affordable housing. And it was that that led to the whole subprime mortgage crisis in the first place, because however much you may wish that those who are very much less well off should own their own homes, the problem is that they don't actually have the money to pay the mortgage back. Yeah. So you're saying that's the that's early... It. Had that been stopped in the beginning... You could have that, not had the crisis because oh, the absolutely. subprime you people would not have gotten mortgages in the first place. Exactly. And you have to stop the drift towards lowering your underwriting criteria, which appears to be beginning to, to take place. And always, as I say, with the political pressures. The other day I jokingly said, once politicians start talking about affordable housing, Banks and regulators should lock them up immediately before they do any more damage so, so, to the banking system. So what would you have done, had you been Dodd and Frank, or you know, equivalent of that, what would you have done after the crisis to prevent things from happening again like that? The mortgage underwriting standards you think is a good thing. Yes, to uphold what, those proper standards. What, what else would you have done? I think I would, well... I think I would have strengthened 
the regulation and the supervision, and actually I would have preferred a single regulator for the banking sector as a whole. Well, there's going to be state and federal always, right? Yes, but state and federal, you've got to keep them very closely in line. You see, we don't send in uh, banking supervisors to, as bank examiners to occupy the head offices of banks for months at a time. Banks have often told me in the past that the state bank examiner comes in, he stays, she stays for a certain length of time, then that one goes away, and then the bank examiner, examiners from either the Federal Reserve or the Office of the Controller General come in. Always a conflict in that, because if you're there as a bank examiner, then either you know what is going on, and if you do nothing about it, then you're partially responsible. Or if you didn't know what was going wrong, then you're incompetent and shouldn't be there in the first place. So, so how so has I, the implementation been since the crisis of all I these bank regulations? I would say that the OCC, whom I met and talked with the other day, are making efforts to improve the quality of their supervision, looking at best practice standards and applying those to banks. But here, let me interject with the step that I think the UK has taken, which I, th I know that some regulators in the US are looking at with great interest. Uh, we call this the senior management regime. And I'd like to explain sure. what that is. Uh, what that is, it sounds simple, but it is in fact um, much more powerful than it might at first appear. First of all, a bank must set out its organizational structure, think clearly about who is responsible for what, what the reporting lines are, up to senior managers. So senior managers have very specifically defined areas of responsibility, and all of that has to be shared with the bank supervisor. The senior manager then has to set out a statement of responsibility and sign his duty of responsibility so that he is perfectly clear that he must know what is going on in the area of bank for which he is responsible. He must know in detail. There must be no excuse for saying, oh, I didn't know what that group of traders were doing or that individual, I didn't know what he was doing. I think one of the reasons why people get dis very disappointed with supervision is that they too often see two things happening. They see somebody lower down the pecking order is the fall guy. Uh, he or she goes to trial, maybe put in prison, loses their job. Whereas the senior manager remains in his job, still gets a bonus, still gets paid, and may move from one job to another within the banking system. Uh, the Office of the Control of Currency does have the power to ban people from working in the industry ever again okay. because of the faults in the past, but it is not that often exercised. I did check through the figures and I found, given the size of the banking sector in America, I found a relatively small number of people were banned from the industry on an annual basis. Very good. We have to take a break. Uh, this is Jordan Goodman of The Money Answer Show.
My guest this hour is Una McDonald. Her book is called Lehman Brothers, A Crisis of Value. You can find out more about her and the book at unamcdonald.com. We'll be back after this. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. We hear it and read about it every day in the news. America is heading over a fiscal cliff. Home prices are still receding and unemployment growing. How can you preserve and increase your wealth in this kind of economy? Tune in to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with host Jay Taylor. Jay will explain the decline of our monetary system and the economy and will give you winning investment ideas and the tools to protect and increase your wealth. Turning Hard Times into Good Times with Jay Taylor can be heard Tuesdays at 3 p.m. Eastern Time, 12 noon Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. What if every day was a good day for business? Because every decision you made was the best choice. What if you could receive regular input from credible sources and could acquire all the precise information you need exactly when you need it so you can make the right decision every single time? Because There's More challenges you to make better decisions. Join Laura Ellis every Monday at 9 a.m. Eastern, 6 a.m. Pacific, and 2 p.m. GMT on the Voice America Business Channel and learn how to think differently for better decisions, better business. Get the news on our shows and other happenings by following us on Twitter. Find us at VoiceAmericaTRN or Twitter.com forward slash VoiceAmericaTRN. You've been listening to The Money Answer Show with Jordan Goodman. If you have a question for Jordan or his guest, please call us now at 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Now back to Jordan. Welcome back to The Money Answer Show. This is Jordan Goodman, your host. My guest this hour is Una McDonald. Uh, she's the author of a new book called Lehman Brothers, A Crisis of Value. You can find out more about her and the book at her website, unamcdonald.com, spelled O O. N-A-G-H-McDonald.com. Welcome back to the show, Una. Thank you. So we had um, all this criminality, basically, almost bringing the entire world financial system down, yet nobody pretty much has gone to jail, unlike earlier, where, like the savings and loan crisis, there are lots of people. Why did that not happen, and have things changed so the people responsible for bringing down the entire world financial system pay for them more than just losing their jobs? Uh, if, if indeed they lost their jobs, uh, some just moved on to run another bank. I, the reason for it is, first of all, that the Department of Justice did not bring individual cases. Savings and loan, most people were found guilty of fraud. If we look at Lehman's in particular, that, that will help us a lot. Uh, the examiner for the whole bankruptcy proceedings wrote an extremely lengthy report and the trouble is that most of the things that Full did fall under the heading of bad business decisions, which means, of course, one, you can't put them into prison for it because uh, if you're going to put everybody in prison who made bad business decisions, no matter how destructive they were, you would have an awful lot of people in prison. So bad valuation, of, overvaluation of yeah. assets is not considered fraudulent, is that right? It could be fraudulent, but if it is fraudulent, you have to be able to prove that. The examiner went through and, I would say, found great incompetence in, in the property valuation. 
you have to remember also that a lot of the property valuation rules uh, applied to the banks that the OCC supervised, but not to the investment banks at all. So bad property valuation doesn't deserve prison. The only possibility there, and the bank examiner makes that point, is the accounting irregularities and the use of Repo 105. But whereas in the past, uh, as you remember with NCOM, NCOM and uh, WorldCom, Enron, senior yes. bank, Enron, <laughs> Enron and WorldCom, senior bankers did go to prison. Because there, there was outright fraud in the numbers there. Indeed. And, yeah. and of course, the Department of Justice went after, went after them. That is actually where I think our introduction of the senior managers holding the duty of responsibility would at least clarify that and you could at least ban such people from the industry. The other thing which no one has yet considered is should the contracts that senior managers have over their pensions, their bonuses and so forth, should those be overruled if they are found to have run the company in not exactly a negligent because that's a different issue if you have to prove willful negligence. That is possible. But because they have not carried out their duties of responsibility properly, that might be possible in the future, and I think that would help. Let's talk about some of the long-term impacts of the whole Lehman situation. Uh, how is it affecting us now, where we are, and going forward? Are there future bubbles created, and as all the regulations and... What we've learned from that will stop future bubbles from blowing up the way it did then? I think, as I said, that what you have to really look is the main reason for bank failures is bad lending. And so what you need to do is to look very closely at the criteria banks are using when they lend in the residential mortgage and in the commercial mortgage arenas. And you have to make sure that the standards are there and that the standards are followed. You know, most banks throughout history fail because of bad lending. Secondly, as I mentioned before, you shouldn't overrule underwriting criteria because you want people, uh, both as individuals borrowing money for houses or as small businesses, for example, um, are able to borrow money without proper checks being carried out. And you'll think that's happening now, at the beginning of the loosening. It's, yes, it's beginning of the weakening of the criteria. Mm -hmm. Again, Fannie and Freddie still have a role in the market, an important mm -hmm. role in the market to pay in terms of the mortgages that they are prepared to buy. And if they weaken those conditions, then that weakness applies to the whole of the banking sector. I think the most important thing uh, which can protect us in the future is requiring banks to hold much more proper capital. But they've been doing that. There's the Basel III. There's all yes. kinds of regulations. Indeed, You, you think yes. that's not but, enough? You think that's not uh, enough? No, no. I think that that is a good thing that's happened. It's, it is beginning to happen that banks are building up proper capital. But, of course, whilst they're building up proper capital and whilst they're required to maintain proper ca capital shareholder equity, for example, and retained earnings, whilst they're in the process of doing that, then they have less money to lend. And so politicians must be prepared to accept that if they want safer banks. I mean, right now, there's the banks, I understand, that have tons of capital to lend, 
but they're not lending it very much. They're making it very difficult on small businesses, individuals to get mortgages, and it's very, very difficult for the average, even well-heeled person to get mortgages and loans these days. So it seems like they're being extremely tight. Maybe it's because of regulatory or whatever, but it doesn't oh, seem oh, like it is. Too loose. It is. It's yeah. because they're being required to hold much more capital. And, of course, you see, it all sounds lovely, doesn't it? Lending to small businesses, to startups, and to medium-sized businesses. But actually, small to medium-sized lending is really quite risky. As you know, very many people start up small businesses and they maybe last a year or two and then they collapse. So you need to have uh, clear criteria. I think actually we also need to go back in the small to medium-sized business sector particularly. We need to go back to what used to exist and that's lending officers who really know the business that they're lending to and really get to know the people involved and keep an eye on those customers who are Whereas what's happening today is it's much more centrally organized. Yes, yes. yes. So, I mean, Uh, the uh, overall impact of this seems to me that you've had uh, much tightening of credit and it makes it harder for the economy to grow. It makes it harder for the real estate market to do well. People can't get mortgages. Mm -hmm. So that seems like one of the major long-term implications of the whole Lehman collapse. It it is, but, uh, you know, unless if you'd manage, if the whole process of lending had been managed properly throughout the 2000s, then we wouldn't sit here and be talking about the necessary restrictions on bank lending. So you're saying basically what you've learned from doing this whole story on Lehman is that it all could have been prevented had we yep. not pushed for affordable housing at the beginning. So to some oh, extent, the politicians who, who yep. have a big role to play, and, well, and they're uh, not well, going to jail or taking any blame for this, right? Oh, exactly. <laughs> no, they, as you know, in, in my other book on Fanny and Freddie, it all started with the announcement that Bill Clinton made in 1995. And the whole national housing strategy, which the Bush administration continued with. So, yes, the blame does lie very much at the doors of politicians. And, you know, I listened to politicians in the UK as well. Uh, before our general election, the business secretary was on the one hand wanting banks not to indulge in what he called casino banking, and on the other hand, he wanted banks to continue lending to small businesses and you're not doing enough and constant lectures to them. And I used to sit there and listen and say, don't you understand how risky lending to small businesses is? <laughs> yes, indeed. Very <laughs> yeah. good. Well, thanks so much. My, uh, we've learned a lot about Lehman Brothers and the implications to uh, our economy today and the future. My guest this hour has been Una McDonald. Her new book is called Lehman Brothers, A Crisis of Value. Uh, you can find out more about it at her website, which is unamcdonald.com. Thanks so much for being a guest on the Money Answer Show, Una. Thank you very much, and thank you for the time given to me. Thanks so much, and we'll be back with another edition of The Money Answer Show next week. Goodbye for now. Thank you for joining Jordan Goodman and The Money Answer Show. If you have a question for Jordan, please visit his website at www.moneyanswers.com. And be sure to tune in every Monday at 12 p.m. Pacific Standard Time right here on Voice America Business. See you next week.